I, I think I counted the word day being used 10 times. And so God is making a point, a day is coming. Yeah, he's real subtle here, isn't he? Very. <laughs> Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning into the 37th episode of Working with the Word. Last episode, we started a new observation interpretation application series, putting those steps into action as we introduced the book of Zephaniah. Similar to episodes like this we've done in the past, we're going to spend the next few weeks breaking down the book into a few smaller chunks that make things easier to talk about as we go through in our study. Today, we're looking at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, and its emphasis on the coming day of the Lord. Now, the coming day of the Lord is a theme that carries throughout the whole book, but we find it quite prominently here in these verses. So here are some things we're going to notice in our study today. The grievances God has with Judah, the very detailed description of the day of the Lord's wrath, and then finally, a call to repentance. So let's kick things to Emerson now, who's going to remind us of our text by reading Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3. And before I do that, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Zephaniah 1.1 The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place, the names of the pagan priests along with the priests those who bow and worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky, those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom, and those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated His guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice... I will punish the officials, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, there will be an outcry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second district, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you residents of the hollow, for all the merchants will be silenced. All those loaded with silver will be cut off. And at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will not do good or evil. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses a ruin. They will build houses but never live in them, plant vineyards but never drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord. Then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, 
a day of clouds and total darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind, and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather yourselves together, gather together, undesirable nation, before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. So as we think specifically about these first 13 verses, Emerson, what did you first notice in this section here at the beginning of the book? Yeah, the first thing that I noticed is actually the very first words of the book, the word of the Lord. I think we might tend to take that for granted if we're reading a book of the prophets. But I think that's really important that we kind of begin with that because what we're reading here is a a message directly from God. And the book actually ends with a similar statement in chapter 3 and verse 20. The final words are, the Lord has spoken. (laughs) And so we need to, when we read a book of the prophet like Zephaniah, We need to feel the weight of that and not take it for granted. We need to realize that Zephaniah is speaking on behalf of the Lord. He's speaking authoritatively. And you also find within these first 13 verses several times, he says, this is the Lord's declaration. Yeah. Basically a thus says the Lord. And so we need to remember these are not Zephaniah's words. These are God's own words. You mentioned in our introduction episode how Zephaniah serves as a great miniature version to look at how the prophets Mm -hmm. usually work in general. So rather than having to start with a bigger book like Zechariah or Hosea or Jeremiah or Isaiah or something like that, we can get some of those themes here to help us introduce if the prophets may seem kind of intimidating to us. And that's something that's throughout the prophets, as we'll see, thus says the Lord, or often even times as, you know, maybe Isaiah said something, usually attached to that is, Isaiah spoke the word of the Lord or something like that. Like you mentioned that this isn't just Zephaniah giving his two cents, but he's giving an actual declaration from God. And I was thinking the same thing as kind of what I noticed of you have there in verse 2, verse 3, verse 10. This is the Lord's declaration. That's very powerful to see that God is speaking here in this point. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely speaking in these first 13 verses of I'm not happy with Judah, right? Yeah, yeah. and in the first uh, verses 2 and 3, he talks about destroying everything. Uh, I'm going to sweep away everything, the birds, the animals, the uh, people, the fish of the sea. It, it's almost taking us back to the book of Genesis when God made all those things, but then he had to destroy all of them in Genesis chapter 6 through the flood. Mm-hmm. And of course, that happened because of man's sin, violence, and you know, the rebellion of, of mankind against the Lord brought that. And it's the, the same theme that we're seeing here repeated, that, that sin brings this kind of uncreation. And you also see this being used in a kind of hyperbolic sense, 
we're going to see more in chapter 2 next week when we get to more local judgments. He's going to, the Lord is going to speak directly to specific nations, including Judah. Mm-hmm. But here in chapter 1, he begins with a very sweeping statement. I'm going to destroy all of creation. We also find that in some of the prophets as well. Very universal cosmic language to describe something that's more local and specific. Yeah. The point is that, you know, God has been patient and now his anger has, it's going to run its course because his patience has run out. Yeah. This day that's coming that's talked about there in verse 8 and in verse 7 is this day where God says, enough is enough. I think we're all familiar with that aspect of life where it, you know, maybe sometimes for parents, as much as we love our children, there's that kid who's just whining for no reason or crying about something. And it's just like, why are you still crying about this? Or, you know, why are you <laughs> behaving this way? You've been playing that little annoying fair trumpet for the past 17 minutes. And if I hear it one more time, I'm going to explode. But, <laughs> you know, rather than us saying that God is just like us in that, we need to make the point that God has been very patient in all in regard to all of this. We'll talk about mm-hmm. that more and as we even move forward in this episode, but we really do get a big picture of God's anger here. But don't forget, God is also long-suffering and slow to anger, but God's also going to punish wickedness, like we've talked about. He's angry about the sin here. So God is upset about what the priests and what the rulers are doing. He's upset about the apathetic attitude of the people. I love that line there in verse 12. He's going to come and look for those in Jerusalem who have settled down comfortably, who have said, hey, you know what, we've got things pretty well established here after a couple hundred years of being a nation. God hasn't really done good for us. God hasn't really done that bad to us. And so we'll just do our thing when God is clear that that's not the attitude you need to have. You need to always remember and be grateful for what I have done for you by giving you this land. And you can go all the way back to Exodus Deuteronomy, times where before they had the land, God says, this is a blessing I'm giving to you. And so for them to just flippantly treat that blessing as if it's not a big deal is very hurtful to God. And we can see why he'd be frustrated to see his people just behaving like this and being full of violence, being full of deception, being more like the people around them rather than like the people of God that they should be. You know, this... The book kind of opens with a list of grievances against the people, and it's not as though they're just just blowing that fair trumpet, you know, or just being annoying to God, right? <laughs> yeah, they're being stubborn. At, at the time of Josiah, the kingdom has existed for hundreds of years, and even before the actual monarchy has been established, the people have been living in the land for longer than that, and so they know better, and they have these covenant promises of God. Uh, And they have these blessings of God, like you mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, when you go into the land and you receive these, you you live in these houses that you didn't build, and you, you, you know, have the fruit of these vineyards you didn't plant, don't forget the Lord, that he has given you these things. And, and so the, you know, the list of grievances, these are things that would rightly and justly provoke the Lord to anger. There's a couple of things that I think specifically we need to mention just to explain in verse five he mentions those that pledge loyalty to the lord and also to milcom milcom was one of the ammonite gods also known as molech and he was associated with child sacrifice 
Mm-hmm. And so he's not only just highlighting this general idea of idolatry, but to his extreme and, and offering children as sacrifices. And, and how the people could worship the Lord, Yahweh, and Molech at the same time, trying to bring them together, that violates the very first commandment of God, you shall have no other gods before me. But you see them trying to do that multiple times throughout their history, trying to bring the Lord in alongside of other gods, as if he is equal to them. Uh, and the prophets had, have a lot to say about that as well. Mm-hmm. So let's move from thinking about these more general things, uh, the grievances, or kind of just thinking about the introduction of the book here, to these next couple of verses, verse 14 through the end of chapter 1. We've already seen hints, kind of what I first noticed there in verse 14 is it starts with, the great day of the Lord is near. I mean, we've seen stuff like that already in verse 7, the day of the Lord is near. But now Zephaniah is going to get more detailed. So I guess before I talk more about some of this detail, what are some things that you noticed in this section? Yeah, some of the same things. I, I think I counted the word day being used 10 times. <laughs> and so... God is making a point. A day is coming. Yeah, he's real subtle here, isn't he? (laughs) Very. (laughs) And it's very vivid how he describes this day. There's really no question about what this day is going to bring, right? I mean, we can we can speculate about is he is he talking about a specific day in history that's coming? Is it going to be the fall of Jerusalem in 586, or is he talking about some sort of judgment that's coming before that? I don't think that's necessarily the point. I mean, that, those things are going to happen in history, but the point is that, you know, when it comes, you're going to know it, and it's going to be a day of trouble, distress, etc. The, these negative words to very vividly picture in their minds that this is a day of the Lord's wrath. Yeah, and, and as we read about it here, we'll talk about the day of the Lord more in chapter 3 and see some other things, but as we look at it here, we find that if we wanted to sum up these five verses, it's just, it ain't going to be good for the people of Judah whenever this day does come. Can I mention my favorite line? Verse 17, their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Well, if I could ever have a ain't good day, I think it'd be whenever that happens to me. Yes. Right. And yeah, right. That, that's only one of the many descriptions and couplets. Again, you talk about those negative words, trouble, distress, wrath, gloom. All this is meant to show that it's bad. And at this point, there's nothing that is going to be done for them to stop that day. God's wrath is coming. Even their warriors, we see in verse 14 and verse 15, this idea that maybe God's wrath is not going to be stopped because of some army that's going to get in his way. The warriors cry bitter at this time because they can't stop God. In verse 18, their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them. I mean, there are some people even thinking about powerful empires in history. Isn't that called paying tribute? I'll pay tribute mm-hmm. to you, and you don't bother me, and I'll be loyal to you to some degree, so please don't invade and ransack my homeland. There's no paying tribute to God at this point. God's wrath is coming. And so while these five verses, you can sum them up into God's wrath is coming on Judah, and the day of the Lord is near, let that sink in what it's like to be someone living in Judah to hear that word from Zephaniah and to think really that word from the Lord and to say, I mean, this sounds terrible. Yeah. And and again, in verse 17, I also want to point out that God says, because they have sinned against the Lord. Again, we'll talk more about the Lord's anger in just a second, but this section is really strong 
and emphasizing that God's anger is against their sin. Their sin has has become has reached a point where there's no turning back now, and this is the natural consequence of their sin. And I wonder these kinds of this kind of language that is very vivid and graphic and kind of shocking is the intent is for us to see how serious it is and how uh, how big of a problem sin is. And I wonder sometimes if we take sin too lightly just in general. You know, one of the great lessons from the prophets is sin is is a really really big deal and right. the Lord has a lot to say about it. So the vivid language here, really we need to think and, and sit in that for a while. But Zephaniah and really the Lord here don't just, I mean, they they really do hammer the fact of what's coming and why it's coming. Mm-hmm. But it's not just, hey, it's going to be bad. It's bad because it's your fault and that's it. We actually see, we might call them glimpses of, of mercy or hope for the people like in the first three verses of chapter two. Maybe chapter two, somewhat an unfortunate break as we want to include this with our section for today. What did you notice about these three verses as we look at this, just this section here? Uh, yeah, uh, there's a shift in thinking about how the people should respond to what they've just heard. And he, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, gather yourselves together. That he, this is a call for the people to come together so that they can repent together. And he calls them an undesirable nation, and which is, again, kind of shocking because these are his people that he loves. Mm-hmm. And some of the other prophets actually call Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, you're acting like Sodom and Gomorrah, and so God treats them like that. Yeah. Um, and so God doesn't, you know, but this is, again, a call to repentance, a call for them to come to come back to the Lord, to seek the Lord. What did, what did you see in here specifically about how the people should do that? Well, I guess before we get into that, kind of off the point about what God says about his people and what they've done, there's a quote in Homer Haley's commentary on the Minor Prophets. He says, Judah has sunk to the level of heathens. Therefore, it's repent or perish with the idolatrous people. I like that quote to think about what God is doing by calling them that there isn't necessarily just a name call, but it's for them to wake up and to say, this is what's going on in this moment. This is You're acting like this and know what happened to them. They perish. So it's either change, repent, turn thy heart, or it's perish just like they did. I notice here what he says for them to do in verse 3 to seek him. He talks about seeking righteousness, seeking humility. But I think there's a real interesting contrast that's made. In chapter 1 and verse 6, God's upset because there are those who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. But in chapter 2, verse 3, among this gathered together, let's repent together. So what does that look like? What do we need to do? We need to seek God. Rather than thinking that he's inactive or far away or distant from us. He doesn't care about us and giving us good or evil. And that God is very much involved with his people and does care about his people and cares about when his people treat him flippantly and even hurt him with sin. And so he calls for them to to humble themselves and to seek him and seek his commands and follow those things. I think that's such a, a great connection of, yes, people haven't been seeking God, but how do I fix that? What do I need to do? We might simply say, 
stop doing that and just turn and seek him. Yeah. Now there will be some, maybe some changes in lives that need to be made, some more specifics that may not be exactly the same for everyone, but that's the general idea that's going to help them with this problem. If we're struggling living in sin and we read about days like this coming, we think about the final judgment, make some connections to that in a moment and see that what do I need to, I just need to seek God here and to come to repent for him. Again, another quote that I found, call to repentance here is not designed to drive them to despair, but rather drive them to God. That's from Matthew Henry. And I think about when churches enact church discipline, when people are telling other people to repent, when Nathan tells David to repent in 2 Samuel. It's not to make him completely feel morbid and sorry for himself and to to die in sorrow and, and sadness like that. He has to go through that. He has to feel all those emotions, just like we all do when we go through sin. The ultimate point is to say, I need the Lord. I mean, hopefully I'm not all over the place here, but I think about Jesus' statement, being poor in spirit in the Sermon on the mm-hmm. Mount. I think that's part of that idea. Even those who mourn there in that next beatitude, those two ideas are our dependence that we have on God and mourning the fact that our sin separates us from him. That's what Zephaniah's and really the Lord's call to repentance here is about trying to get them back to God. There's this hope here in this moment that he gives within these three verses of just seek him and maybe you'll be concealed on that day of the Lord's anger. That's an interesting phrase, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, it is. I'm going to come back to that in just a second, but when, when you were talking about you know seeking the Lord, I was thinking about what he says here in verse 2. He uses the word before three times. Mm-hmm. So the point is that we seek the Lord now because after it happens, it's going to be too late. The judgment will be already passed. Yeah. So seek, now, seek the Lord before that happens now. And that's, you know, the urgency of this cannot be overstated. Amen. There, there's an urgency that we need to do this before the day of the Lord. And, and that idea of perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger is interesting because that idea conveys a possibility. You know, the Lord is being very merciful here in offering them an opportunity to repent. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of another prophet, Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Here, Joel does something very similar. He offers a chance for the people to repent, to rend their hearts and not their garments. A very vivid language there. But in verse 14, this is Joel 2, 14. He ends that call to repentance by saying, who knows? Maybe he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. And so there's something very similar here going on in Zephaniah where maybe the Lord will do this because he is merciful. But there's also something of a different emphasis here in Zephaniah because there in Joel, Joel says he might return or he might relent concerning this judgment. Maybe it won't happen if we repent. But there's really not that emphasis in Zephaniah. The point is in Zephaniah, it's going to happen whether you repent or not. <laughs> the question is, are you going to are you going to be able to stand in the day of the Lord's judgment? There's really no potential for withholding judgment here in Zephaniah because sin has gotten so bad. There's no turning the ship around. But there is a possibility for protection when the day of the Lord comes. And and again, that shows the Lord's mercy. Even those that have committed these sins, they can they can humbly uh, come to the Lord and say, we're sorry, and we want you to protect us in this judgment. So much mercy here, as well as his anger kind of blended together. Yeah. I hope that 
we can convey to our listeners, and I hope that we can internalize ourselves when we talk about words like perhaps or maybe when it comes to stuff like this. We're not trying to say that you do this, if you do truly repent, then God may still condemn you eternally. Yeah. I don't think we have the position to say that. In fact, when we look at scriptures, I think we see that if we truly repent, we see God's grace and favor being enacted here. But particularly yeah. in these languages of the prophets, hopefully our audience can catch on what we're talking about with, is God going to return or turn away from the judgment like he did with places like Nineveh or maybe in Joel? Is is God willing to conceal you so that you're still going to feel some of the effects of his anger and his judgment there, but that through his grace and his strength, you'll come out on the other side. I think those are very helpful things to try to remember as we talk about this language. And so thinking about applications for today, as we think about God releasing these floodgates of his wrath and this anger, we see day of the Lord type of stuff being brought up in the New Testament. In First Thessalonians mm-hmm. chapter 5, we see Paul tell the Thessalonians, you know, concerning the times, seasons, and he's talking about the, the topic of the day of the Lord you don't need to know anything about that, Christians. The, the point there is that, yes, it's going to come like a thief in the night, and in that day, for many, it's going to be a surprise because they're unprepared for it. But God has given us a warning. He's given us the scriptures to know that there is going to come a time when his son will return and judgment's going to happen. But when that time comes, we can be ready through our faith in our Lord Jesus, our obedience to him, as we see in Second Peter chapter 3, particularly verse 9 and 10 there, think about the patience and the long-suffering that God has extended to us by giving us opportunity to hear his word, to respond to his word. We can be prepared because God has given us a warning. God is patient with us. The fact that he is long-suffering is, the, is evident in the fact that we're still here today, and particularly people who are not yet obedient to him who still have a chance to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel, can avoid that day of wrath through putting their faith in, in the Lord's Son, Jesus. And we see that there in First Thessalonians chapter 5. We see that you know, if we are prepared, if we've done and, and realized the day is coming and, and we respond to the gospel, then that day is not a surprise to us, not because we know exactly what day or what exactly is going to happen, but because we know that we're living expectantly for it and ready for it. Yeah, we're constantly living in this mode, if you will, of seeking the Lord and seeking righteousness and seeking humility. This phrase, the day of the Lord, is used not only in several of the prophets, but also, as you mentioned, in the New Testament. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, is used with a variety of applications as to time. So you mentioned Second Peter 3. I just want to read verses 9 and 10. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some count delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and its works on it will be disclosed. And so the day of the Lord here is the Lord's coming, his second coming, and that day is delaying because of his patience, specifically because he wants us to come to repentance. And so definitely there's a connection there to Zephaniah. Another theme that I think we need to come back to is this idea of God's anger. God's anger is not a characteristic that we tend to highlight a whole lot today. 
because it makes us uncomfortable, or we like to highlight God's gracious character, and he certainly is. But the Lord also has a jealous nature. And in, in Zephaniah 1, at the end of the chapter, mentions the fire of his jealousy. And we need to understand that that's language that comes from the Ten Commandments. He told the people, don't worship any other gods because I'm a jealous God. And we see in Exodus 34, he describes himself as slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so bringing all of that together, his anger and his wrath and his mercy and his forgiveness, we need to realize that when God does get angry, he has every right to. And as you mentioned earlier, it's not a flying off the handle kind of anger. He's not just annoyed at us. He doesn't want to be around us. Rather, it's because we have violated who he is, his very nature, his very character. And so he has every right to feel and act in those situations. And that's hard for us to understand as Americans sometimes, even as humans, because our anger is oftentimes very capricious, unpredictable, selfish, but God's anger is never like that. Yeah. I mean, that's, like you said, it's maybe an American thing. Maybe it's just a a human thing to see that all over. Of We hear characteristics that God has, and we have those same characteristics, especially something like anger, which is like almost always, not all the time in our relationships, but almost always seen as a negative thing. And it's hard for us to not project that onto God, but we need to make sure that we are sitting in the whole thing together and understanding who our God is, and as he describes himself, not who we're making him out to be. Yeah, when I think of his, his anger and his jealousy, jealousy there doesn't mean envious. It means that he is protective of this relationship, like a, like a husband and wife would be jealous for each other. Mm-hmm. And that highlights the relational aspect of who God is. God is jealous for his people. And when we violate that relationship that he has initiated, well, he's angry with us because we have turned away from him and all the blessings he's poured out on us. And so that idea of jealousy is very relational. Um, think about it in those terms, in that context. Yeah. So our final application for today is thinking about righteous people, or maybe even if someone's listening right now and and you are struggling with sin and you haven't been seeking the Lord, wherever you are, the encouragement that we see from this call to repentance in Zephaniah is that we need to seek the Lord or keep seeking the Lord. That righteousness, that humility, that's what our call is to be. And if we seek the Lord, we might think, it's a somewhat word association, but thinking about what Jesus says in Matthew six thirty three, seek God and his kingdom first and look for those things and do that. And as we do so, we know that we will escape the day of the Lord. If I can, I got to turn, so you might hear some turning, ruffling of pages. But First Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, we read in there how it talks about in that day that we will not face God's wrath because of Jesus and because of what his son has done for us as we're prepared for that day. Verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 5, God did not appoint us to wrath, but obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as that day of the Lord will come, and even as we'll see in Zephaniah later in the book, that is a definitely a day of judgment for those who have not prepared themselves, those who have not sought the Lord, those who have thought very apathetically, those who are living in sin are going to face that wrath of God. But for those who do seek the Lord, 
for those who find that salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. It's a day of of joy, of salvation, when that day will come. We'll be looking forward to seeing that message in Zephaniah as it blends perfectly together with this message of God's wrath as well. So what's our challenge, Emerson? What do we do with this first section of Zephaniah? How can we encourage our listeners to meditate upon some of this going forward? I'd say the first thing is go back and read it again. Um, if you haven't read it, you listen to the whole podcast, you listen to us talk about it, but we want to encourage you to go back and read it for yourself. If mm-hmm. there are things that you notice, underline those or write them down in a journal or something, or let us know what you notice. We'd love to hear from you. But after you reread it, just take the time to sit in this idea of God's anger and ask yourself how that coincides with his love and his mercy and the expression of his compassion here. And in the text of Zephaniah 1, his anger and his love coexist. Uh, Now, one is more strongly expressed than the other, but I would just want to challenge you to think about God's anger and how does that mesh with your idea of God? Does that idea make you uncomfortable? Does it make you skeptical or does it confuse you? And if so, why? So embrace that and try to think about that and try to come to terms with how you think of God's anger as it is expressed here. Thank you for tuning in to Working with the Word today. We'll continue our series next week by looking in Zephaniah chapter 2 and a little bit of chapter 3 and thinking about some of these more specific judgments on the nations, again, sinful people, as this day of the Lord is approaching. If there are other questions or topics or books of the Bible you'd like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.